are in Mark chapter 12, and uh, we are beginning with verse 35. It says this, And Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who walk, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this widow has put in more than all those contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, and has put everything she has had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. God, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for this chance to study your scripture, Father. I pray that you would reveal and illuminate your character, God. I pray that you would show us that you are in authority. You are reigning. You are at the right hand of the Father. Your Son, Jesus Christ. God, reveal to us. Show us who You are. Be with my words. And I pray against the enemy, God. Keep us from distraction that we might come to grips with the beauty of Your authority and the beauty of submission out of love and respect and reverence for who you are. I thank you for Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Images of Jesus part 32 is the message tonight. And it is the final of three parts, a sort of trilogy I've kind of called it. And and it's all talking about conflict. Jesus coming into conflict with these religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees and and scholars. You hear those words a lot. You'll see those words a lot tonight. But uh, I want to make it clear that these scribes, these Pharisees, these scholars, however they're titled, whatever they're called, as we walk through this message tonight, these are the people that make up the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is the, the governing body of the Jews that will eventually sentence Christ to death. And the stuff we're going to read about tonight, about three days later, Jesus will be nailed to a cross, breathing his last breath. So that's the context for what's happening here. And the, the context for the conflict that Jesus is knowingly and willingly entering in. Throughout the whole course of this, this study of the book of Mark, and in particular the last few weeks, which have detailed the last week of his life, we are, are privy to the knowledge that Jesus will be dead and Jesus will resurrect shortly after the stuff we're talking about tonight. We have that information. The people in the midst of the story don't have that information. They, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the Sanhedrin, thinks that they are winning this battle. And so much of life in in our context, looking around this world, and we'll talk about that as we go along, 
We, we walk around this world thinking the evil is winning, the enemy is winning, just like in this circumstance. But understand that Jesus, the conflict that we're going to talk about tonight, we've been talking about for the last two weeks, Jesus intends for it. He knows that these people are powerful enough to take his life because that's what he wants them to do. Understand, and we'll, we'll read from Psalm 110, we'll read from Psalm 37, we'll read from, again, out of Mark 12, and understand that Jesus is in authority. Over the top of everything we've been talking about in authority is that Jesus has authority, period. We can submit to that authority, or we can be in opposition to that authority. And tonight, we're going to see what happens to those who are in submission, what happens to those who are in opposition. Uh, the first part of, of the story of this last part of the trilogy is, is very simple. It, it flows quickly. There's three points to, to draw out of it. And the first thing is, is who Jesus is. We're going to see him tonight as king. We're going to see him as priest. And we're going to see him as warrior. But before we get to, to those individual details, let's look at, at what he says he is. Who is Jesus? It says in, in chapter 35... And Jesus taught in the temple, how can the scribes say the Christ is the son of David? I want to back up. When, whenever Jesus is called the son of David, they are speaking in terms of his family tree, his heritage, his ancestry. I have two grandfathers who both passed away. One is Harrison Maxidon. He worked at a, uh, at, a, at a shoe factory in central Illinois all of his life, served diligently in his church. If you go back to his church today, people, there's plaques on the wall about who he is and how he served his church. We can go back and see who he is. I come from that line. I have another grandfather on my mom's side named Robert Niemeyer. He was a, a great war hero in World War II, flew a plane, uh, have highly decorated war hero. If you go and, and look up his war decorations, you can find it online and find exactly what he did, flying in, in D-Day under great pressure and, and flew a bomber, uh, massive big deal that he was a part of. He is another part of my ancestry. I can trace back my roots to him. When... Jesus is called the son of David, it's the same deal. If you were to call me, you are the son of Robert Niemeyer. Now, my dad is rich, Maxidon, but I am the son from the line of Robert Niemeyer, my mom's dad. And you can go back and we can all trace back our, our family history. And that's what's happening here. And Jesus is, is, is bringing conflict. I'm not just that guy. You say I'm the son of David. I'm from the line of David. You think that David is greater than I. Then he brings up Psalm 110. This quote in verse 36 is a direct quote from Psalm 110. He says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. And then he, he quotes Psalm 110. But before we get to there, let's hear this. David himself and, and these people, these scribes, these Pharisees, these, these Sanhedrin hold David in the highest regard. He is the greatest king, the most powerful king, the time that Israel, the Jews, were at their, their strongest was when David was their king and in control of everything. So everyone is measured up to David. So to be called the son of David is a very powerful thing. But Jesus says, David himself called me Lord. And Lord is more than just a, a little thing. It is the person that I submit to, the person that, that has power and authority over my life. And Jesus is that guy. So... Continue on. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and until I put your enemies at your feet. Direct quote from Psalm 110. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And a great throng heard him gladly. That is what Jesus is laying out. I am the son of God. I am Jesus. I am the one who David called Lord. 
I want to get into a little bit about this Psalm 110 because it's it's a huge, vastly important psalm to these people who make up the Sanhedrin. By that I mean this. Psalm 110 was a royal enthronement psalm. So basically, any time a king was newly installed, newly enthroned, the coronation service, the coronation ceremony, they would read and or sing, most of the time and sing, Psalm 110. So all these people, when Jesus quotes Psalm 110, it is something that these scribes and Pharisees know very well. They've all got it memorized. They've all read it. It's, it's probably on parchments all throughout their homes they, because it's, it's a very, very important psalm, and it's prophecy. So this is uh, a coronation psalm. It's widely known by these scholars, and it's prophecy. And in it, Jesus here, as he says this in verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Jesus is saying this prophecy that's made about this guy in this psalm that you all know, I'm him. I'm the subject of this psalm. I am in full authority. So let's take a look at Psalm 110, because for us to just read this and see this quote doesn't do a service to what's actually happening here. When Jesus quotes Psalm 110 to these people, he is evoking thoughts in these people's minds that all the stuff that make up Psalm 110, I am he. I am this powerful one that Psalm 110 is talking about. So Psalm 110, verse 1. Uh, I'll read it quickly for you. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord. Let me stop for a second. The Lord says to my Lord. The Lord says to the master I serve. David says, calls Jesus the master that I serve. Sit at my right hand until I make enemies, your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And remember, Jesus just quoted Psalm 110.1. But these people knew this psalm so well that all of these things would flood into their brain the moment he quotes Psalm 110. So know this. Jesus is, we need to to connect with what's here so that we can connect with the story that Jesus is telling. Verse 3 of 110. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning, from the, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. And listen to this language. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore, he will lift up his head. Beautiful, intense imagery. But three things come out of this. Psalm 110. First, Jesus uses Psalm 110 to show that he is king. He is totally in control. He is higher than David. David, I've mentioned before, he is seen by all these people as the top, as the king of of. If we look back at who are the greatest presidents of the United States, we think Abraham Lincoln, we think George Washington, we think these great, we think Roosevelt and these great presidents of our time. For these people, the single most important king of their day, of of all time in the history of their nation, is David. So everything is compared to David. And Jesus here not only calls himself higher than David, but he connects a point where David himself called Jesus higher than David. He brings that to life. 
David David calls him the master that I served. But he is also seated at the right hand of God, showing power, showing authority. The right hand is a position of power. The right hand is a position of authority. But it's also a, a position of someone who has the ear, the attention of God. This is the person sitting at the right hand of God has the the authority and privilege to speak into the ear of God. And we'll get to that in a second when we start talking about Jesus as priest. But he's also in a seated position. He's seated at the right hand of God, which is symbolism for a finished work. Do you see that? When when I get done preaching, I'm going to go back there and I'm going to sit down next to my wife. I'll be seated because my work is done. Jesus here, his work, his supernatural work, the, the bringing about the redemption of mankind is completed for all eternity. And Jesus sits in this position of authority symbolically as his work is finished. So what is this application for us? Is the application is, is what we have been talking about since the beginning of this message and the beginning of this little uh, authority trilogy. And it comes down to this, that Jesus is king today. And as such, we can submit to his authority or we can be in opposition to his authority. And as we walk through this next set of verses in a second, we'll see what happens to people in authority. But Psalm 110 also shows Jesus as priest. And this is, uh, this is really interesting. Uh, I did a lot of study this week about what it means to be a priest and this connection with this other priest from ancient Hebrew times, Melchizedek. Verse 4 says that Jesus... The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. A few months ago, part of the series, we we brought about this this understanding of what redemption is or what repentance is. And the word repentance here is what's said in this verse. Verse 4, the Lord will not change his mind. So many times of repentance, we think that that we've got something to do with it. We've, We've been taught in Sunday school that we're walking this way and repentance is turning and walking this way, changing. But We have no ability to change our mind. God is the one who says here in this verse, I will not change my mind that Jesus will be the priest forever. The same word for our word in repentance is here. God will not change his mind. It's been strong, it's been powerful, it's been made. And that's the word that is used here. He will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Jesus is a priest forever. Let's get some context for what a priest is in this context, in this time. Remember, this is before Jesus has died and resurrected and, and become the great high priest and torn the veil away. So people in this day, the rank-and-file believer, the rank-and-file Jew, couldn't go into the presence of God without help from a priest. The priest's role was the connection to God. He did everything. And he was the, the one who, who was praying for the people. He was the one who was making sacrifices for the people. He was giving the people privilege to have relationship with God. The priest was vital. And here, God has just called Jesus the priest forever. It's important for us to connect with that. But who is this Melchizedek? This is the the interesting part. Melchizedek is somebody who, uh, there is no, he's a very shadowy figure in the Old Testament. There there is nothing that, that is shown in Old Testament documents or extra biblical Documents. What I mean by extra-biblical, meaning documents that were written at the time that aren't canon scripture. They aren't the Bible. It's, it's very cloudy about who this Melchizedek was. Who, what we do know was that he was the priest at the time of Abraham. 
And we don't know how his reign as priest came to an end. So the legacy is, the lore is, that Melchizedek's reign as priest never ended. So when God, when David proclaims in this prophecy that God has said, Jesus will be like Melchizedek, what he's saying is that his reign as priest will never end. But there's more. Melchizedek's name actually means king of righteousness. So Jesus is reigning forever by connecting with Melchizedek, and now he is king of righteousness by connecting with his name. And he was also, Melchizedek was the king of an area called Salem. And if you know what Salem means, it's peace. So he's reigning forever as priest. He is the king of righteousness, and he is peace. This is who Jesus is. When Jesus brings these thoughts to the minds of the people that will eventually kill him, this is what he's saying. I am the priest who will reign forever, and I bring righteousness and I bring peace to everyone. So, uh, an, another thought. Scripture teaches us that Abraham, who is the father of Judaism, every Jew had can trace back his lineage back to Abraham. Right? And Abraham gave a tenth of all of his spoils and everything that he had to Melchizedek because he was the priest of the time. So, Abraham the father of these people, submitted to this priest. It's important for us to connect with what a priest is. And it brings application for us today because Jesus is this great high priest. And here's the facts. As our great high priest, Jesus, as we've already learned, is sitting at the right hand of the Father. This is a beautiful promise to us here that we can hold on to, application that we can connect with. Jesus is praying for you now. Right now. This moment. It is 527. 537. Jesus is praying for you in heaven now. It's what a priest does. He argues on your behalf before God. Jesus is the great high priest. And as he is the great high priest, and as he is seated next to the Father, one of his jobs is to argue on our behalf before God. And he is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. That is who he is. He's bringing his righteousness to us, arguing with God. Not an argument like his, and I might win, I might not win. He is convincing God of what he is, showing us what we are. It's huge. And huge for us to connect with that this is who Jesus is for us today. But he's also, just like the priest offered sacrifices so that we could have audience with God, Jesus is that high priest who has offered that perfect sacrifice himself so that we can have connection to the Father, connection with God. This is vastly important when we see him as the high priest. He is pleading your case to the Father, and he is also concerned with the details of your life. I have brought, been brought to, to great moments of worship this week as I study this and study what it means to be a priest. And, and I, I think... If we've been in church for a while, and most of us here have, we understand we've heard this concept of high priest and it really never connected with what it meant to have a great high priest. But as I've been the pastor of this, this little church plant that we're struggling trying to make things work, it's made me very aware of, of who I am. Scripture talks about, in Ephesians chapter 4, that, that God gave the church as a gift pastors to come and lead the church. And among those are apostles, and among those are evangelists, 
and prophets and shepherds and teachers. Those five categories. And he brings giftings among those people to lead people. And I have been made aware watching this place be what it's been for the last two and a half years and and pouring myself into this place. And and it's been very eye-opening, making me aware of, of who I am. And I am gifted as a shepherd. A lot of you guys in here in particular have seen that and have seen me connect with your hearts in counseling ways where I, where I just give all that I am to, to shepherd your, your life and your heart. And I connect with that because I know who I am and I know how intensely I care for this group of people. And, and I don't say that so you'll pay attention to me. I say that because Jesus here is proclaiming that he is our shepherd. And, and I see how men have shepherded my life, how my parents have shepherded my life. I see how God is, has uniquely formed and, and transformed my heart and my life to, to shepherd us. And I see the, the, the sin and the, the nastiness of, of who I am and, and my failures. And then I, I take that notion and understand that this great high priest who is shepherd argues and pleads and shepherds our hearts and our lives. And he's doing it in this moment. Every moment. He is shepherding your heart and your life. And it's, it's a beautiful concept. If, if I've shepherded you in any way, if you've ever been shepherded in any way, understand that there is a great and perfect shepherd and high priest that desires life for you and gives himself up for you. He is our priest. And these things have to lead to willing submission. If we connect that grand story of of this great high priest, this perfect Jesus, who shepherds and argues and pleads the case on our behalf and gives up his very life for our advancement in order to shepherd us. That has to lead to submission. If you're doing that for me, I give myself to you. It has to lead to submission. The next thing Psalm 110 brings about is that Jesus is a warrior. And this is really cool. Here are the prophecies from the mouth of David about Jesus to these people. Let's remove ourselves for just a second from Psalm 110 and understand the context. Jesus is just quoted Psalm 110 to the people who know it very well. So they connect with what happens in Psalm 110 that we're about to study. That Jesus is a warrior. And they realize that they are the ones that are in conflict with him. This is what Psalm 110 from the mouth of David says about Jesus. Jesus is shattering kings on a day of his wrath. Listen to the intensity of this language. Shattering kings on a day of his wrath. He's executing judgment. He is filling the nations with corpses. Do you, do you see the? Get this sissy, white robe wearing Jesus out of your mind. This is an intense bloody, weapon-yielding Jesus. He is not just king who is robed in 
splendor and majesty. He is not just priest on his knees praying to God. He is warrior. Shattering kings on his day of wrath. Executing judgment. Filling the nations with corpses. Filling the nations with corpses. Spread out all over the nation. Dead people. Because they were in conflict with Jesus. He is shattering chiefs over the wide earth. This is what Jesus is quoting to these guys. You're going to be dead and I'm going to be the one to kill you. Application for us. This is a powerful warrior that we can stand in opposition to or we can submit to. And what seems like victory, remember we talked about it before, these guys think they're winning. Oh yeah, Jesus, you're all that? Well, we're going to kill you. And while they think they're winning, they are not winning. And while we think that the enemy is winning on this earth, they are not winning. I want to read Psalm 37 for you. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Connect our hearts with this, knowing what we know about Jesus and his shattering of earth and filling the nations with corpses. Fret not because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword. These men in this circumstance, the Sanhedrin, is drawing their sword against Jesus right now. The wicked draw their sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy to slay those whose way is upright. Don't have to look very hard to see that in our culture and to see that in the context of our story that the wicked are trying to destroy the people of God. Psalm thirty-seven, fifteen: Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Our God is a God who is filled with vengeance and filled with power. Submit to that or be in opposition to that. You decide. So Jesus here, that's Psalm 110, and all that Psalm 110 is is communicated to these guys. He has declared who he is, and then he turns the focus of the talk towards these men. He delivers the fate of these guys, these Sanhedrin, in verse 38 of chapter 12. Back to Mark. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. Here's what's, what's happening. There's a bunch of people around. He's in the, the foyer of the temple, which is actually part of the temple in the Old Testament time. So he's there. He's teaching a bunch of people. And scattered among this bunch of people are people in the Sanhedrin. So he's just led out on this, this diatribe about Psalm 110 and about his authority and about his power. And then he turns it and he says, beware of these people who are around you. Beware of those who abuse their authority. Here is what Jesus says about the people who abuse their authority in verses 38 through 40. They are self-important. Pay attention to me. I want to make myself look good. I want to make myself look strong. I am self-important. They also have the best seats in a synagogue in verse 39. Verse 39 also says they have the places of honor and they devour the widow's houses. That is what they do with their authority is display their self-importance, have the best seats, have the places of honor, and they devour the houses of widows. I want to 
detract from, from this message a little bit and, and break out of, of this context of Mark and ask ourselves this. What places of authority do we have? If you have kids, you have authority over, over your kids. If you are married, you have authority in your relationship with your, with your spouse. If you are a boss of some kind, chances are we, you have authority in some way in your life. Some facet. And I want to ask this question. Who are you serving with your authority? These scribes, these Pharisees, these people that make up the Sanhedrin have authority and they are serving themselves with their authority. And look at Christ, Jesus. We talked about him being king and priest and warrior. What does he do with his authority? He dies. That's what he does with his authority. And what is the response to that? We lift you up to the right hand of the Father and give you the name that is above every name. What are you doing with your authority? Are we acting like Jesus? Are we acting like these guys? in abusing our authority. So what is, we said the second part, is the fate of those who abuse their authority. What is the fate of those who abuse their authority? They will receive the greater condemnation. The condemnation, again, from Psalm 110. He will shatter kings on his day of wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is the response to those who place themselves in opposition to the authority of Christ and who puff themselves up and abuse their own authority. They wind up as corpses spread over the wide earth, shattered chiefs, showing, being shown the the wrath of this vengeful God. But Jesus doesn't end there. He ends with the beautiful story of Rich people coming and placing money in the offering plate. And then this old widow coming and placing two small copper coins which amount to a penny in the offering plate. In my mind, before I studied this passage, it seems disjointed. He's talking about authority. He's talking about conflict. He's talking about just being rough with these Pharisees. He's talking about condemnation and all that stuff. What does this have to do with it? And I was thinking, again... This, this is the third of a set of trilogy talking about authority and conflict. And, and my mind, when I think of this, goes to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And, and there's so much death and so much conflict and so much stuff that's happening. People rising up and filling their roles and, and people uh, abusing their authority and, and people abusing their power and, and all that stuff to try to gain more authority and more power. But ultimately, at the end of the third movie, at the end of the the return of the king, two major important things happen. One, the ring is destroyed, and so this chase after this lust after authority and power is gone. And then second, the king is restored to his rightful place as king. If you guys have seen that, you you reconnect with with what is happening. There's been seven, eight hours of movie, of life happening, of of death and, and conflict and resolution and all this stuff, so that these two things can happen. That uh, this need for authority, this, this lust for authority can be gone, and so that the king can be rightly placed on his throne. That is the point of, of the whole trilogy, is so that story can be told. 
The point of this whole story of conflict is so that this moral, this story can be told. And and here it is. The point is these people coming to the treasury and giving their great gifts, giving their great amounts of money, and then this one small, widowed, unimportant, seemingly worthless act, giving a penny. If, if you guys come and put a penny in an offering plate, it's probably not going to change what happens here, and it's not going to be that big a deal, except to give all that you have. And it's the, all the story of conflict is told so that Jesus can tell this one simple story. This is the point that Jesus is making and Mark, as he's writing here to us, is an image of submission to the authority of Christ. I want you to miss that. Mark is telling this story through the life of Christ, about the life of Christ to communicate this one simple point. Jesus is drawn to those who submit to him. I want us to, to know this. This is the, where we, where I've been trying to, to lead us to. These two simple points. The only thing that we control in our lives is the level of our surrender. The only thing that you control in your life is the level of your surrender. We can have these verbal wrestling matches that we've been talking about for three weeks. We can have these confrontations with Jesus. We can be confronted with His authority. We can be confronted with conflict with Jesus. We can be confronted with watching the, this earth succeed temporarily in its evil ways. We can watch all that stuff. But really, the only thing that we control is the level of our surrender. Your days are numbered on this planet. You will die You don't control that. The actions of people around you are filled with sin and wickedness. You don't control that. Your actions are filled with sin and with wickedness. Scripture says you were born that way. You are that way. You can't control. You act who you are. You can't control that. The only thing that we control is the level of our surrender. And here's the home run. That Jesus is not drawn to important people. He's drawn to surrendered people. Look back at Psalm 110. and the close of Psalm 110, Jesus is drinking by the brook in the light of the day. But before that, the people who are self-important, trying to get people to, to look at them and trying to hold on to their authority... They are in conflict with Jesus, and Jesus is the corpse-making warrior. But Jesus is drawn to surrendered people. I want us to reflect on authority. I want us to reflect on Jesus as king, as priest, as warrior. But I want us to come to grips Come to grips with the fact that Jesus is completely in control. And the only thing we have to do is submit to him or oppose him. It's pretty easy. Jesus is drawn to the submitted one, and he is a warrior filling the earth with corpses to the to the one in opposition.
Let's pray. God, I thank you for these verses. I thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that that you have endured the Scriptures so that we can have your character revealed to our hearts, God. So that we can have knowledge of your Son. God, as we we see your Son tonight as King who has full authority, as priest who cares intimately for the details of our life, and as warrior who will come back and establish his kingdom as we see Jesus for all of those things tonight. God, would you cause us to submit to who you are, to surrender to your authority, to trust you completely. God, be with us as we enter our time of response that we might encounter you, Father. We love you and we praise you and we worship you. Spy, the great king, the great priest, and the great warrior's name that I pray. Amen.